All right, everybody, welcome to another edition of What's What VR. Today we have Dr. Stuart Gordon with us here. How are you, Dr. Gordon? I'm fine. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. I appreciate it. You are from Louisiana with Louisiana Healthcare Connections, also Centene as well, just but kind of running wearing two hats. But um, for anybody that doesn't know, kind of what's your background pediatrician? We talked a little bit before, you know, and some history at Earl K. Long Hospital. But, you know, kind of what's the background? Maybe what's a little bit of that? Where got you today? You know, what do people need to know? Okay. Yeah, I'm a, a pediatrician by training, born and raised here in Baton Rouge, went to LSU undergrad and then moved down to New Orleans from med school and residency training as a pediatrician at Big Charity and Children's Hospital. Came right back to Baton Rouge and worked at LSU Earl K. Long for almost 20 years, uh, teaching, taking care of uh, med students, residents, obviously a lot of patient care, predominantly working with the underserved Medicaid population or free care. Also spent uh, quite a few years overseeing the care of kids incarcerated in Louisiana juvenile uh, uh, secure prisons and uh, detention centers. So I had quite a, a fascinating, interesting, never boring career doing that. And then about 2012, right before the closure of uh, Earl K. Long, I was approached by uh, some of the Medicaid managed care companies. Uh, the state of Louisiana was sending, basically privatizing their Medicaid system, farming that out to uh, companies skilled in managing Medicaid for large populations. So I became a chief medical officer for one of those plans and then transitioned to another one. So I've been doing that for about eight years now. And so uh, Louisiana Healthcare Connections is one of the five Medicaid managed care companies here in Louisiana, managing the um, Healthy Louisiana program for the Louisiana Department of Health. We have a little over half a million insured lives uh, with the expansion of Medicaid several years ago uh, that increased the role significantly. And so what we do is we're basically an insurance company that help uh, uh, make sure we have enough physicians in our network statewide to take care of the medical behavioral health needs of the Medicaid population in Louisiana. Um, we have contracts with hospitals, providers. Uh, we do case management, care coordination, things of that sort to really help the, the uh, Medicaid recipients that are members of our plan access the care that they need. So that uh, you know, the goal is to improve the community uh, one, one member at a time, improve their outcomes, improve their health, uh, being good stewards of the state dollars and reducing expenditures, but also getting the members, the patients, the uh, medically necessary treatment that they need. I was, you were halfway through explaining that, and I was about to have to say, you have to break that down on where... I wasn't following, and I guess just my ignorance from the, you know, the state would outsource it, but it kind of makes it sound like at the end of the day, if I try to sum it up in layman's terms, instead of the state maintaining their, you know, Medicare, Medicaid program, they would outsource that because they don't have the resources, the staff, the people, the know-how and say, hey, look, you guys manage this for us because you guys know what you're doing. Is that right fair. they basically are managing yeah they're managing the contract the way that works is the state puts us out on bid to a request for proposals every three to five years and uh, companies like centene we're the louisiana plan for centene which is based out of st louis missouri um the other uh, participants are united aetna amerihealth caritas and healthy blue so those are the five that were awarded the contract to manage the entire Medicaid population, which is a little over a million, probably one and a half million lives, I think, in Louisiana or on Medicaid. Wow. 
So what is always like to kind of ask everybody, you know, you mentioned you're the, I hear right, the chief medical officer, you know, for them. Correct. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So what yes. is, what is a regular day in the life? You know, kind of what's, how's that, you know, to bring that into, you know, I get up usually every morning, I'm running kids to carpool. I'm trying to keep up. I'm trying to get into the office, answer questions, help work with advertisers, work with editorial, you know, what's it like to be, you know, a CMO of, you got half a million people, it sounds like, that are not to mention then staff yeah. on top of that, you know, that are right. relying on accurate decisions. Well, I wear a lot of administrative hats, as they say, and uh, I tend to be kind of in the relationship business at this point where because I train a lot of the pediatricians around the state and worked with a lot of med students and whatnot, I know a lot of doctors around the state, been involved in some of the medical associations over the years. So it's good to have that personal touch and knowledge with the actual physicians providing the care. So one thing I do is reach out to them, make sure that, you know, their needs are getting met, that we're supporting the, their patients, our members, in the way that they need. Uh, they'll call me. They all got my cell phone if there's a problem with whether it's medical related or getting the bill paid or how do they connect a member to a certain specialist that maybe they can't get them hooked into. So you never really know what you're going to get each day. Uh, I also have a team of doctors that work with me. We have uh, three psychiatrists and three other uh Uh, physicians, two internal medicine doctors, and one uh, pediatrician. So they review cases for what, uh, you know, if a a patient needs a service, some of them require review for approval to determine if it's medically necessary or not. So that team of doctors stays pretty much busy all day long doing that type of work. Um, We also, uh, like I said, I get involved in some of the business aspects, work with the uh, contract team to kind of develop new programs. It's, it's kind of called value-based contracting now, where instead of just the physicians getting paid uh, for volume, we're trying to make sure that quality is a component of those visits. And instead of it just being kind of a, a rat race or a mill, uh, just seeing as many as you can every day to make ends meet, the idea is to maybe have a little bit more global approach to the patient and um, mm-hmm. discuss more, you know, look at the whole patient, behavioral health, physical health, uh, you know, social determinants of health is a big thing now, trying to figure out if housing or food insecurity, things of that sort, or what's limiting their ability to take good care of themselves. So uh, those are kind is of that, all the big things that we work on. Is that some of the, I've heard the term in the medical world, it's come up in the last probably five years. Is that the meaningful use? Is that kind of where, is that where it jumps in on some of that stuff? Well, uh, Meaningful use is considered um, that that's tied to the electronic health records. Um, mm-hmm. A few years ago, when the uh, we went to a lot of electronic medical records, in order to uh, uh, use them, it had to be determined that you were that you had meaningful use uh, of your mm-hmm. records. I think for your record to be certified, is if I'm I'm no expert on that, but I think that was uh, the shift okay. into electronic medical records. And if you had Meaningful use, you could um, get some uh, help with uh, developing your EMR system as a provider. Gotcha. Well, tell me to kind of jump, you know, into a couple of things that, you know, I've heard through the grapevine and maybe you probably know more, you know, on this stuff. You know, we're all living with the 800-pound gorilla still, which is COVID in the room. Um, Try not to make this all about that. But, you know, 
there's been talk or I've heard different things around, you know, COVID has, you know, this impact of diminishing, you know, the, you know, the routine immunizations for children, you know, is it, you know, whether it be from, you know, scared to go into a doctor, don't want to do this, don't, you know, what's the, have you heard of this? Oh yeah. And, and that's been one of the biggest, well, not only COVID in and of itself, but I guess one of the big side effects of COVID is, is whether it's pediatrics or adult, the lack of folks uh, ability to maintain their wellness. And in the pediatric space, the, the big concern is we've seen a big drop off in uh, families taking their children in for their well child checkups, especially in the early years, like the first three to four years of life when you get most of your immunizations. So, uh, and rightfully so, folks initially were skeptic, skeptical about going into the doctor's office. We were encouraged to not go uh, just for public health concerns, not knowing too much about COVID. But now <clears throat> that we know a lot more about it and the vaccines are here, it's really important to get kids caught up with their immunizations. We've seen a drop off in routine immunizations in 2020. And, you know, these are uh, immunizations against diseases that are preventable that we're aware of. Whereas COVID is something we're not that familiar with and we're beginning to get vaccinated for. So everybody's getting that, but we don't want to see the return of diseases like measles and whooping cough, uh, homophilus influenza, meningitis. Uh, a lot of these, you know, folks just have not heard much about because we've done such a great job of immunizing our children. I believe immunizations were the second of, in the top 10 list of the most important developments of the 19th century just behind uh, sewage and water treatment. And uh, just the amount of disease that's disappeared because of uh, vaccines ranging from polio to measles to mumps to now uh, uh, different types of meningitis as well as uh, uh, preventing cancers with the HPV vaccine. There's just been a huge drop off. And with the attention on COVID, We've seen that drop off, and so we're really encouraging families of small children and all age kids to call their pediatrician's office, their family doctor, and get plugged back in to get caught up um, because the visits are safe. A lot of them have put in good protocols to uh, make sure that you know people feel safe and secure when they go into their uh, physician's office without risk of catching COVID or being too exposed. So we really uh, want folks to go in and get, get caught up. I'd mentioned to somebody in to, you know, that was, that I was wanting to talk about this question before the show. And the thing was they had mentioned, they were like, wow, you know, you're right. It, it was a blur, you know, kind of the 2020 was just so much happened. So impactful that you didn't even realize, right. you know, it's like, we completely didn't do that, you know, 18 month checkup or we didn't do, you know, this, they were saying they're like, yeah, I'm going to have to make that call. It's completely, it wasn't even us. It wasn't that they were even worried or that the, pediatrician wasn't open or they couldn't do it. They just straight forgot, you know, that they were supposed to go in, you know, and do it. And I think that's so many other things that just kind of got forgotten along the way because we were all so stressed out and we were looking at counts and what's going to happen and what's going to open makes, you know, now it's kind of like, Hey, let's dial it back in. Let's, you know, get caught back up. Right. Well, rightfully so we were quite distracted with the pandemic, something that I uh, hope we never see again, at least in our lifetimes, but um, in the adult world, too, there's been recent articles, and, and we knew this at the time, but, you know, women were typically going in for their annual uh, pap smear or their uh, mammogram. Uh, men and women were uh, getting their um, 
colonoscopies, all those things got put on hold. So there's a lot of backlog of uh, routine wellness and prevention that uh, needs to get caught up on. And then a lot of people delayed seeking attention for, you know, what they would go to the ER for in the past with like chest pain or strokes and people were hesitant to go in now. And uh, some of those symptoms have just kind of been ignored. So uh, we know there's some pent-up demand and probably some disease out there that's not diagnosed that people need to, uh, it's time to go back and see your doctor. We definitely want that to happen. Yeah, no, that's, and I think that's a lot of things. I know there's, I can think back multiple times, people would be, you know, oh, I need to go get this checked out, but I just don't want to go. You know, I don't want to go anywhere around, you know, possibly, you know, catch it, but it's the same thing. You know, it's, I guess, two completely different fields from medical and health to, you know, petrochemical or down in South Louisiana, you know, but there's both have this pent up demand of projects and you know, a lot of petrochemical, a lot of things got, you know, pushed back down that we're not going to, you know, we're going to hold on that, but then it doesn't mean you don't have to do it. You know, same thing on the medical side of things. It's like, you right. might've skipped that colonoscopy that you needed that you're supposed to get every four years. And last year was the year but you now got all those, it's, you need to make the calls and get back in, you know, or get the children back in to see primary. Um, speaking of kids, what, you know, you guys, some of the things that it's not just the medical you mentioned, it's well-being, it's different things, you know, house, those kind of things. Where do you guys find, you know, kind of the importance of play? You know, we've talked to some of these different, you know, museums and being able to go, you know, some of them have been able to open, they can't do things, you know, kids have been locked inside. We've been told, you know, distance, you know, away from each other. That's got to have some impact, right? It, some yeah. There's a lot of literature out there now with studies looking at how this whole uh, social isolation has impacted children's development, especially the first five years of life when your brain is so formative. Um, and we talk about the importance of play even before COVID, you know, uh, folks are so caught up in uh, in uh, academic achievement and making sure their kids the next Rhodes Scholar and getting the school ready to learn and whatnot. We tend to uh, we tend to forget that kids just need to play, and play is probably one of the most creative and educational things you can do. Unstructured play, just to enjoy uh, time with your kids and let them do things that aren't structured. That uh, simply uh, playing helps develop a, a good brain. And uh, with COVID and all the social isolation, kids have gotten a little hesitant and anxious, uh, more behavioral health concerns through all ages, not just children, but also a lot more anxiety. And uh, so it's important to get a release and just get out and play, whether it's outdoors, indoors, but just get away from, uh, you know, structure, uh, especially in the early years and go enjoy some uh, good old fun, playing the dirt, ride a bike, uh, play chase. Uh, you know, and, and shut down the screens and get outside and do some things. So, um, and to overlook that. That's we I've always said, it's kind of the way I grew up and my, remember my mother would always tell me like, go out, go outside and just find some mud, you know, just go find some dirt, you know, yeah. get dirty. And, and I can equate to what you're talking about. Some of that anxiety, I, th- I find it funny. I've got a daughter who's about to be 13 and she will do anything and everything on that phone. You know, she can go to town and she's not afraid to, you know, she'll post videos, you know, and talk to people. And we went into, we went through a drive-through to, she wanted to get something from like an ice cream or something. And I'm like, Hey, just order. And she like shut down, 
like just completely like, no, no, I can't talk to him. I'm like, what do you mean? You can't just tell the speaker what you want. You know, you're not even talking to him. It really, you know, rattled her a little bit. She's like, I've never done it. I don't know what, and I don't want to talk to him. What if I mess up? I'm like, okay, we're going to have to fix this. You know, <laughs> you, yeah, need to, yeah. you need to be able to talk to people in real life. So it's uh, well, on the one hand, some of the, technology has been helpful like in all the kids doing remote learning had they not had uh access to uh virtual school they'd have really been isolated at least they could you know get on zoom and see one another and uh uh, they'd all put their headsets on and be like being in the classroom so from that perspective they did get to socialize even though virtually instead of being right next to one another but um nothing really replaces you know human to human face-to-face contact no without a doubt every time we do this show we've been doing it for a year now and every every episode we've done just like we're doing now over zoom and people are always like well, when are you going to start coming in person and doing it it's like i'm ready but not everybody else is ready and then how do we you know, yeah. logistically do it it makes things convenient you know easy i tell people you know here in baton rouge i love downtown but i'm never going downtown for a 15-minute meeting again you know, I've done I've done that too many times. We'll just jump on Zoom. We'll have a call, and we're done. I think our world has changed, and uh, I wish I would have invested in Zoom before I even knew it existed. Because that, yeah. that seems to be the way of the world now. Yeah, because why you know why do all that if uh, you can hop on a Zoom call and talk to anybody anywhere in the world for a few minutes? I've I've used Zoom for years. I actually got a like a little award from them one year for being like one of the top 10% of the users, you know, this was way beforehand and I would use it every day, all, you know, day with different projects and people with different companies, but I could never get on a zoom. I'd tell people in town, you know, here about like, Hey, you want to jump on a zoom? And they'd be like, what are you talking about? Like a FaceTime. I'm like, no, it's a zoom. You know? And I'd be like, never mind. I'll just come to your office. So, but it's, I think it's good. It's forced us to adapt. You know, it's, if yep. anything, if we tie back on the medical side, I think it's amazing how much it's propelled telehealth, you know, and letting people be able to not have to go right. like, you know, to not have to go sit. The example I tell people all the time is and I don't, I'm not a physician or even pretend to be one or have anything to do with it, but to no longer have to go sit in a doctor's office with pink eye. You know, like that's an easy diagnosis. You know, it's like you can do that with a phone, call something in, right. you know, and go drive through a drive through and pick up a prescription for your kid. That's got to just cut down the rate of pink eye, you know, moving around at that point. Well, I mean, case in point, uh, if you look at, uh, you know, influenza, which is another preventable illness, tends to be we get vaccinated for every year with the reduction in activity and social isolation and masking, there's been hardly any flu this whole flu season and other respiratory illnesses if you look at the data usually i mean we have 10 20 000 people die a year from flu in the united states and i think it's under 100 this current past flu season because because social isolation and masking and this is universal around the world so we really have not seen flu and um and you mentioned telemedicine telemedicine has been a huge in helping people access care remotely without having to uh, physically go in. Um, but that too has also given some folks false insecurity about not going in for preventive health or wellness visits, which uh, especially in kids back to the immunization thing, obviously can't get a vaccine through the 
through the telehealth visit, you got to go in for that. And uh, we really need folks to, to uh, remember to make those calls and get plugged in and get caught up with those shots. Well, I can tell you, I don't remember who it was, shame on me, that told me, I think they told me on the show here that one of the things they found surprising, they started doing a lot of telehealth visits, but, and I learned it's what they called white coat syndrome, but they had a lot of people that had high blood pressure. They were coming, able to take them off the high blood pressure medicine because what they found out is it wasn't really as high as they thought it was. It was just, they were getting very nervous when they were going in to see those doctors and they always had the elevated high blood pressure. And then over telehealth, yeah. they noticed it went down. It wasn't, you know, what it used to be. And it was, they're saying it was a pretty significant amount of patients. So I thought it was interesting. interesting. I hadn't heard about that one, but yeah, I remember the term white coat hypertension. And uh, I guess that's yeah. gone down with people because you can do remote monitoring of all you can, you know, Bluetooth in your uh, blood sugars, your blood pressures, your weights, things of that sort mm-hmm. to help manage different, different uh, chronic diseases. Well, one of the things, you know, before I get you out of here, I wanted, you know, kind of kicking around, tooling around the websites. One of the things that it looked like was wanted to talk about was, you know, investing in early childhood, you know, systems, you know, care, you know, where, as a pediatrician, where do you see that, you know, for people, if we could let them know how important this is? Well, fortunately that's gotten a lot of play here in the last decade, but what we've learned so much in the last 10, 20 years is the, how the human brain develops. And uh, it's sort of the last frontier, if you will. I mean, not that there's not things to understand and learn more about in other areas of the body, but the human brain is still kind of the last frontier to understand and, and learn more about. But what we know now is when children are born, the human brain is only like 25% of its adult size compared to like other species, if you will, like chimps or uh, monkeys. And their brains are 60 to 90% of their adult size at birth. So they don't have that much growth and development line ahead of them. Humans, on the other hand, we have about 75% of our whole growth, physical growth line ahead of us. Plus, that's largely impacted or predominantly impacted by your caregivers and the environment you're born into. So we have all this opportunity after we, regardless of how you get here, uh, when you get here, you still have 75% of your physical growth and development line ahead of you. And then the environmental influences are huge. So what we know is by the time you're about two or three, your brain's at 90% of its adult size. And by the time you, um, and it, and then it only grows to adult size in the next, uh, uh, you know, 15 years. So there's tons of activity taking place in there with what we call synapses, where the brain's wiring uh, the different neurons that you have, brain cells speaking to one another, that all gets laid down really in the first two years of life. And then it's a sponge for information, just waiting for good, good or bad influences to make a healthy brain, if you will. So uh, what we know is by the time our children are two, they have the same capacity of either of their parent in terms of synaptic development. And by the time you're three, your kids have twice the capacity of either parent. So that's sort of why we say you need two adult brains to match the wits of a three-year-old. And so uh, you're really at a disadvantage if, if you're alone, if you're a single mom, or if you're a daycare worker with you know six toddlers in there, you're outnumbered because their brain's firing on all cylinders and they're going to outthink you every time and overwhelm you because you just don't have the capacity to outsmart them at that young age. So the challenge is to make sure the kids are, go ahead. 
No, 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 no. Go ahead. I was. I was just saying the challenge is to maximize the uh, opportunity uh, to promote a healthy brain as often as possible in those first five years. Because what happens? Well, we do know that the brain has most of its uh, growth and development happens in those first three to five years of life, and then at five we all go to school. And if you think about it, once you get to school, half of your awake life is spent over half is away from home at school. So that environment becomes, you know, probably more relevant than your home environment. And then when you're home, you still have to get in eight hours of sleep and you have time for homework. So the most uh, uh, influential time in our lives to be influenced by our parents and the environment is those first five years. So uh, we really encourage uh, parents to do as much as they can in those early years. And then there's a lot of people born into situations. You can't pick your parents or the environment you're born into. So if you're born into a world that's full of toxic stress, uh, it may be harder for you to get into a, uh, to be ready to get to school, ready to learn and be able to sit and focus and stay on task. So the idea is to make sure we have high quality early childhood systems of care uh, instead of child storage uh, facilities. We need better child developmental centers. Um, they have quality rating scores that they uh, can qualify for and get. And it's very important that all kids get access to high quality childcare. Uh, much of this can be supported through uh, government involvement um, and resources through things like the uh, early childhood tax credits, as well as uh, some government support for impoverished families to make sure their kids get uh, access for that tuition. It's expensive to go to, uh, you say you have children too, uh, as well. Uh, it's not cheap. Uh, lots of times uh, these developmental centers are as much as college tuition annually. Mm -hmm. So um, the more we can support every child getting access to that, the better off we'll be and all kids getting to school ready to learn. And then uh, you spend way less uh, income on uh, remediation and things of that sort. The economists have looked at this too over the years. Uh, uh, James Heckman is an interesting person to look at called the Heckman, if you Google the Heckman equation. <clears throat> and basically it's not a, it's no pun intended. It's a no brainer. Investing early and often is a way better investment than uh, investing in uh, later in life. You know, it's it, what's the saying that uh, it's easier to invest in strong children than it is to prepare a broken man. So yeah. uh, if we do more and more of that, the return on investment, no matter what study you look at, is either one to two or one to seventeen dollars per dollar put into the early childhood system of care. Wow, that's what a shameless you know plug, but to carry the story, we just we're doing it in April and May. We have a pilot program. We're releasing a it's a, a newspaper magazine book, but what it, it's for kids between the ages of one and five. And we've done this uh, over in the Bay Area for a number of years, but we're finally bringing it here to Baton Rouge. But what we what was staggering, it's all about literacy and teaching kids and making sure that they learn to read. But I was made aware of a statistic a long time, a while back, that it was amazing that most states use like a third grade reading level to, they take that's a large in the algorithm, basically that runs through to determine how many beds they're going to need in prisons that, you know, you can directly exactly. correlate. I, know that I have that in one of my slides and some of these talks that I give that Indiana and California, many states will look at their second, third or fourth grade literacy level 
to get an idea of uh, how, num- how many prison beds they're gonna need in 15 years. And uh, the, w- the most common denominator that inmates have is illiteracy. So literacy is huge. The other thing that's interesting that's recently come out is a uh, kid's ability to uh, attend to a task uh, seen by four. They've looked at it. And so even before you get to school, if you can stay on task at four, that tends to be uh, more associated with a higher uh, socioeconomic status later in life, uh, higher uh, educational attainment, and uh, much less likely to be involved in the uh, correctional system. So uh, it was even a better predictor of success than were uh, uh, math scores and, uh, and literacy. So, wow. uh, and, and if you think about it, your ability to regulate and stay on task uh, sets you up for long-term success. You know, if you get to school and you can sit in a chair for a large part of the day and retain information and respond to a teacher, you're going to be successful. If you come from an environment that's full of uh, threats and toxicity, you're going to have a higher level of uh, stress hormone, cortisol, and your baseline is going to be sort of hyper uh, vigilant where you're always looking for threats and you're not going to really be able to self-regulate and you're going to get into an environment where you're supposed to. And then the next thing you know, you're off task or you're uh, diagnosed with conditions that, that you have to put on medications for. And uh, pretty soon you're, you know, having some uh, uh, juvenile delinquency, dropping out of school, not finishing school, and then move down that path to the uh, penal system. It would almost seem, and I don't know if I'm connecting the wrong dots, but I'm just kind of going back over some of the things we've talked about. If we go back to, you know, the children, you know, and just playing, well, just getting outside and playing, it's going to wear, you know, the child out, you know, a little bit rather than them sitting on a screen and, you know, maybe it puts them to bed a little bit earlier and then they get up and they've got that home environment that you need to come in. I remember I used to have a, you know, a teacher that, you know, in high school, I had the teacher and he was pretty instrumental. And he said, you know, everybody's got that one, right? It was that one teacher. And he would, you know, tell me that, you know, the first thing I needed to do before I came to class was be ready to come to class and be in the class, not be dealing with outside, you know, things. And if I'm, if we've got kids that are wild, you know, crazy, run around, staying up late. They're not tired. We hadn't worn them out yet. We haven't put a good, you know, system of care at home and they can feel safe and that we can get them into a school where they can be in that mindset. You know, I talked with someone that was about the early childhood and they were talking about that's where some of these, you know, lunch programs and the breakfast programs come from in the schools because some of the kids are worried that's where they're getting their meal. You know, and if you've got a, you know, a young child and they're worried about, you know, I'm hungry and I didn't have this high stress, you know, at home, how do we expect to put them in a classroom and make them focus, you know, on anything, right. their brain somewhere else. So, and that yep. would be, I'm equating it. I'm just kind of talking this out loud. You know, people talk about sometimes the schools, you know, turn into, you know, it's like a daycare. Well, maybe that's because you physically have the body there, but mentally the child's not there. So they're not applying themselves And Yeah. You're just kind of yep. keeping up with it. It all, Maybe I'm tying it too far back, but it's go back and find that mud puddle, you know. <laughs> so. yeah. Well, it's not necessarily a bad thing for the school to be the place that you get the best influence. So all the more reason to invest in uh, high quality early childhood and public education. A lot of kids, at least in East Baton Rouge Parish, you know, about 80, 75, 80 percent qualify for free reduced lunch, which means they're coming from impoverished backgrounds. And that breakfast and lunch, that may be the only two meals they get. 
every day. Mm-hmm. So um, that's why they've started programs in the summer to make sure those kids and families get those meals in the summer as well. Cause otherwise they, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of hunger that many of us don't appreciate. And yeah. so, you know, how can you learn if you're, if you're hungry on top of uh, maybe uh, coming from a more stressed and background, more stressed environment. Uh, well, Dr. Gordon, I appreciate you spending so much time with us and, Filling us in here. I always tell everybody you got better, especially someone, you know, of your stature. You got more important things to do than sit around and talk to me. So I appreciate you making some time and, you know, kind of letting us know what's going on and hopefully maybe giving somebody a little bit different perspective on things. Love to have you back and kind of get an update as we're starting to talk about. I'm not, it's, I'm not the guy saying it's over, but I'm hearing more people like, the pandemic in the past, you know, tense, like we're kind of turning the corner. We're not through it, but six months ago, we were sitting right in the thick of it. But now people are kind of referring to past tense, or at least you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. So have you come back and let us know how how it's going for you guys. Be happy to do that, Brandon. I appreciate what Veterans Parents Magazine has done for many years, like you're telling me 31 years. So uh, keep the good information flowing and happy to help out any way I can. And Everybody stay safe, stay masked, and get vaccinated. Old vaccines and new ones, and hopefully we'll get through this and be done with it uh, soon enough. As, as my grandmother always told me, this too shall pass. So we'll get through it. Thank you, sir. Talk to you soon. Thank you.